Miles used to be of the opinion that yours was superior to No Words, and I, and I kind of agreed with a biased slant, but as I've appreciated No Words more, I, I see what you've done. I think that No Words... No Words doing something different with, with Yeah. I hope so. It was his song. Well, yeah. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the debut episode of The Silent Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Silence. A little bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? The Silent Podcast. I, I like it. Uh, a good friend of another friend of the show, uh, Mr. Miles Belvin, suggested I should do edits of everything with just the the letter J. Oh, since there's a silent J in there. Yeah, I just cut out all the J's. Yes, and compilate those together. I'm like, it's possible. Look yeah. forward to that. You know, That'll April. be a, a really fun eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't justify you. Just trying to jostle me around, Jesse. <laughs> Jam as many J's in as you can. Well, uh, let's juxtapose let's, them next to each other. Let's do a, a, a proper introduction. I am here with our featured guest, friend of the show, collaborator, uh, guitarist, and singer songwriter, a Mr. Jesse Katz. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. Yeah, it's a nice, uh, chilly Sunday afternoon. Uh, I want to start off like I have seen. There's a weird way of starting this. Sure. Like baby face you with guitar in hand. Do you want to tell me like from the very beginning your history with the instrument? Okay, sure. I started. Well, I'll have to take you back a little further because I played <laughs> piano first. Uh, that was the that was the condition for me to learn guitar. Uh, for my folks, they wanted me to learn piano, uh, and then I could play anything I wanted after. Really? So uh, I wanted to do guitar pretty early on. I had a CD in my room, Van Halen 2, um, and I wanted to learn in the very first uh, in the very first track. There is a guitar solo that I really wanted to play, uh, and it took me a while to get there, but I did eventually. I really wanted to do that, the Van Halen thing. Uh, so that was probably, oh, it's tough for me to put a, put a year on that, but I was very young. I definitely was, it was probably, it was, it was probably around like pre-K you think, or like, like, or elementary, which I, how, I don't know how far back. No, not elementary. Definitely not. Um, I was probably somewhere uh, around 10 to 12. I probably oh, okay. did piano around 10 and then guitar around 12. Okay. Um, because I know I was definitely playing by the time I was in fourth grade, All right. uh, but I can't remember for how long. That's when you started piano lessons or when you were able to move on to guitar? Man. <laughs> we, don't have, we, don't, we need an exact timeline for your Wikipedia article. <laughs> I'm the first person to tell you that I have a bad memory. Oh, that's fine. Uh, people ask me how long I've been playing guitar for, and I, I feel like I, my answer changes based on the day. Well, I, I tell people somewhere around probably... Uh, 12 years because um, I, I do think it was somewhere from ages 10 to 12 but uh, I'm not exactly confident that's awesome I mean that's that's why I wanted to like air this out because like I, I don't even know because that's something I was curious about uh, I know it's been a long time so you would you say that you were this close like of your parents encouraging you to be like that kind of p- 
pianist, like you're going to take piano lessons. Like, but you, I guess you weren't, cause some people, they start like four or five. That's why I, I was thinking what you were saying. Uh, my mom taught me herself for a little while. Okay. Uh, but, um, like when I was a lot younger, but I, <laughs> you'd have to ask her what happened because then I didn't, I didn't play for a few years. And then, uh, when I was older, I went into lessons with a, with a private instructor. Okay. What, what kept you going throughout the years? Cause I, uh, I've heard this from a lot of people and I tend to agree. Uh, it's very admirable how long you've stuck with the instrument because th- did you ever take any breaks between now and then where you're like, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm fed up with the guitar world. Well, it's funny how many musicians I've met who've done that. I haven't done that. And I haven't, it's not an experience that I have. So it is always, it's always interesting to me when I talk to people who've had that experience where they've, they've been away from their instrument for some time. Uh, that wasn't the case with me. Uh, I definitely remember a turning point where I started taking it more seriously, uh, which funny enough was when I got into improvisation. Yeah, when I learned the pentatonic scale, as you do, um, I would spend a lot of time with the, uh, the old band in the pocket CDs in my bedroom oh, and no play along. Yeah, well, back before YouTube, that was how you would, that's oh how you got your backing tracks. You'd buy a CD of, of recorded music that didn't have lead lines in it. Yeah, so that was what I, what I really started doing the most. Uh, and from there, I kind of developed the facility to uh, be excited to play other things. You know, I was getting to the point once I was doing that every day that I could start trying to tackle some of these more difficult guitar songs that I wanted to play. Uh, what would be probably like pre pre college, the biggest challenge and hurdle as far as like your musicianship would be? Cause, cause that's a struggle in of itself, but uh, I guess younger you, uh, what would you say was the biggest challenge? You know, I was kind of, um, I was kind of full of myself when I was younger <laughs> really? Uh, because it wasn't until I got to college that I was really surrounded by guitar players who were better than me. And that was really good for me. When I was in high school, I was kind of the best player I knew. Uh, and I didn't know what I was bad at. I knew what I didn't know. I didn't, I knew what I didn't know. When I was in high school, uh, I was learning, you know, seven chords on the guitar as I hadn't learned them before. And I was starting to get a bit of vocabulary of a couple different voicings. You know, I remember learning um, Sarah Smile. Uh, that taught me a lot of a lot of the jazz voicings. Uh, and then we did a bunch of John Mayer. Yeah. And yeah. there's all stuff that I did, you know, all concepts that I didn't know, but it wasn't things that I couldn't play. Okay. Uh, but it took me going to college to realize things about, like, my playing that I was really not satisfied with. Do you want to talk about your, your education and uh, how that relates to you as a player, maybe less guitar centered and just you as a all around musician, sure. however, you, however you want to take that. Well, if it wasn't for college, I probably wouldn't have gotten into jazz, at least not as, as at the time that I did. Mm-hmm. When I, when I got into it, it was because I was, between classical and jazz to pick a, a style to play in school. And I, I thought jazz would be more fun. Yeah. Uh, and it was more, it was closer to what I was already doing. You know, after I did it for a while, once I started to kind of get my bearings with it, you know, I got really interested in it. 
So I would say the the whole angle of what I do that's jazz, which is is kind of overwhelmed <laughs> my style, is is because I decided to pursue a degree in music. Do you want to talk about the style, the pre-jazz Jesse Katz experience? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, it's funny you say the the Jesse <laughs> Katz experience. Uh, I had a new name for the group. No, (laughs) no. I had a friend uh, who actually uh, plays in a band now in the area. And we, we, we recorded a demo and we called it like the Jesse and Michael experience. Oh, you did show me this. Yeah. I, I forgot all about, I taken me back to you taking your, us back. Uh, So I, the, the genre that I really thrived in, before I started getting into jazz was pop punk. And I got there, uh, you know, I started with classic rock. I mentioned Van Halen. Uh, and then I got into metal. Uh, and then I got into pop punk. Yeah, I really got into like the melodic writing of pop punk, you know, yeah. coming up with catchy melodies and the intricate arrangements of it. Sure. I did a lot of recording, like, note for note covers of pop punk stuff just to figure out how the pieces fit together. And I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, And I got a lot of respect for the producers who worked in that genre because um, as you might suspect, the musicians themselves don't always know all these little arrangement tricks and the producers were a lot of times responsible for that. So for a long time, my goal was to, was to produce for pop punk bands. You producing or, or producers of the, the records you admired reached out to you. No, I wanted to do that for for my work. Got it. Okay, I see. That was am- among my ambitions while I was in college. Were you self-aware of that at the time, or was that a, like a later realization? Well, I knew that going in. I knew that I had an interest in that, and I knew that I had an interest in the technical side of, of audio, and I knew that I had an interest in, in being a better guitar player. Yeah. So I kind of did all three, uh, and the guitar was the pursuit that took off the most for me. For, for clarity's sake, uh, for those who don't know us personally, uh, Jesse and I had met at college, both going into audio engineering, though something both pursued. We had a, a, a mutual f- friend, a producer of the show, who r- remained nameless. Uh, she's not listening. She ain't listening right now. She's on her lunch break. It's cool. Uh, but we, uh, we had met through uh, our producer, yeah, I, I feel like you and I are, are are similar, like coming at it from a, from a different angle. Uh, I, I will bring it back. So it's uh, you had that mindset from doing those pop punk covers, like there's like the seed as far as like taking an interest and in being aware of production, like audio production. Well, it started just because I was writing music and I wanted to record it and I wanted it to sound good. So. <laughs> You know, I started learning about how you're supposed to do that, how to make them sound better, what all the parts are supposed to be like. I learned drums basically just because I wanted to write my drum parts out. Uh, and, and you know, if you go find anything that I actually played the drums on, then I sucked. <laughs> but I got good enough to, to play the notes in the right order yeah. on the drum set so that I could work out all the parts. Yeah, there's the covers were a big part of it. The covers were more of a way to learn how to improve my own compositions mm. my own work and then the idea was from there the way i would monetize that is that i would go be a, a producer people would bring me 
their songs right. where they were starting from, and I would flush them out the same way that I would flush out my own my own material. I guess I will. I'll, we'll move on from this topic here after I ask this question. But where do you think the line is as far as producer and songwriter is? Because uh, would you? I guess I don't want to like load the question, but would you say like arranging is a very basic form of songwriting? Songwriting is definitely different from okay. from arranging or orchestration. You know, a lot of famous composers did both in the world of classical music. Sure. But in the world of, of songs, popular music, the songwriting aspect is really about your premise, your song structure, your lyrics, and the production, the arranging is adding all the the interest and the detail. And there are certainly people who do both, but people work a long time to be good at those details, and that can really elevate a project. Yeah, for me, it's make or break. I'm I'm very particular about the sound of something. Uh, It sounds simpler than it should be, but I, I, I think a lot of bands either don't have someone who has like that kind of mindset uh, they're just like, like, what do we got? A Casio keyboard? It's like, okay, well, well, that's what we're going to use then. It's like, well, do you like how it sounds? No. Then why are you printing, especially in the days of tape? Why would you waste tape on something like that? Not again, with the internet age, there's a lot of bedroom recordings where it's, you know, the, this isn't like any offense to anyone. Um, you know, I, I want to strongly like encourage, you know, I, I think it's a great thing. Like the, the direction like technology is like taken. Um, but like, I'm always trying to have people be, be mindful, like of those production decisions. Like it's very tiny and you, you got to work with what you got to work with, but it's like those little things like add up. That's the difference between like writing an essay and a novel. I don't know if that's an apt analysis. Versus like just writing for the sake of it and like making a work of art that can be immortalized, I guess. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. Maybe, maybe what how I might phrase it would be like a a, a journal entry versus like a chapter in a book. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, <laughs> that is better. Um, well, did you have anything more to say on that, or do you, are you ready for the next topic? I will say it's a little ironic that I talk about all the detail work uh, uh, when what I've been doing right now. <laughs> is is written on lead sheets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there's only so much you can do in the DAW. Like, you know, some of it has to be outside of the box. Well, yeah. the, the jazz element uh, complicates all your, your planning. Mm-hmm. And you have to... Th- now the question for me is striking a balance between having an intricate arrangement or like a very specific arrangement or having all the musicians contribute their individual expression in the moment. Yeah. And there's benefits to both, so that's where, you know, for me, it's 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 turning out to be on a project by project basis. Yeah, it really does depend. Not, I think genre matters less in today's landscape. Well, I guess we're gonna talk talk about genre. You touched on it a little bit. I want to focus a lot on your your love for for jazz music. It's uh it's very infectious. I will say. Yeah. Uh, it, you know you. You mentioned kind of your transition. Was that high school when you took an interest, you said? or Yeah, so I started taking lessons with a jazz instructor in my senior year of high school. Uh, and I started going to like the summer camp at, at the college that we ended up going to. Yeah. 
So I had my first brushes with it then. I got good enough to pass the audition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really while, while I was there that I, I got so, so well acquainted with it and, and so enamored with it. What what clicked in your mind as far as like was it was it something that you know you grew up around with your family like were you familiar with jazz but just not uh, an enjoyer or ca- kind of what was that transition like and, and as far as like from then to now like you are are an advocate maybe that's ex- uh, extra but uh, a fusion in the subgenre of jazz fusion enthusiast. Yeah, well, uh, I'll have to take you there uh, because I hadn't really listened to jazz before I was learning to play it. Uh, I had to learn about it, I had to discover it. And one of the nice things about going to music school is you get a you get a structured introduction to it. You know, jazz is a is, is such a rich history, and if you are trying to learn about it by just asking someone <laughs> or by googling it, uh, it's tough. It's it's tough to feel like you get a complete picture, and you never will. There's you know it's like it's music. There's always another musician to discover and learn their their story and how they interact with the rest of of music history. Uh, definitely, jazz fusion. It clicked with me. I always well, it makes sense in one sense because I liked rock, and most of the fusion people will tell you that they they like. <laughs> they like rock, and they they wanted to add that next level of of intricacy into rock music, or the other way around. They were a jazz musician, and they wanted to add that. Uh, I heard Frank Gambale use the word. I think power. Oh yeah, yeah. Distortion. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I love the distorted guitar sound. That's and you if you do that, it's fusion. Yeah, you will not get away with calling it anything else. It will be called fusion. Yeah, that was one of my goals for this is like, I want you to define or define what that is. What's the difference between jazz fusion and rock with a jazz element? Is there there a distinction? Well, jazz is a weird, weird thing to define. (laughs) You can try and trace like the lineage of it, but it's been around long enough. And the nature of it is that it's branched Mm -hmm. in a, in a, all sorts of ways, and you can't say like, "Well, this is the lineage of jazz. We're going to call this one jazz." But it's also it's also difficult to say, "Well, jazz is anything that's focused on improvisation." Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's a broad definition. <laughs> yeah. So, jazz is definitely the most the most mainstream recognized improvisational music. So it'd be easy to just say, "Well, they improvised. It's jazz." <laughs> Uh, I think there's a certain history you you expect a musician to draw from yeah. if they use the word jazz. Uh, you know, a lot of I think rock bands that have a jazz element, if you're going to call it that, they're going to focus more on the rock history, mm-hmm. and they're they're probably not going to be bands that are you that are are showing you their rich jazz vocabulary. Yeah. You know they they can have some, and they can even have a great jazz vocabulary. But I think it has to do with where their where their priority is. Uh, at the end of the day, it probably depends on what the musicians making it or calling it. We've talked about defining genres before. Yes, it's a fool's errand. I agree. Uh, I I ask some of these things be 
because I think there might be some people in the audience similar to me before I had met you as far as I, I still kind of say this, I I've come a long way just through osmosis through speaking with you and interacting with you and being around lots of other, um, you know, jazz alumni in in the area here. It, it was, uh, in, in enigma. It, it, it felt like not something unobtainable. Uh, it was just, not something I'd been introduced to as a young lad, yeah. uh, really. So it was like, I didn't, I didn't have any exposure and you know, I was a band kid throughout like middle school. Uh, it was like that or orchestra, uh, ended up playing a double reed instrument, the bassoon, uh, which uh, there's some interesting things you can do that in the world of jazz, uh, for me. And I think a lot of people in, in the mainstream space feel this way where it's, uh, not unapproachable. But it, it it has like a weight to it when when you call something jazz. At least my experience was like you know that was something offered. Maybe it was just the the area I grew up in. You know my school, the school district, all that, all that jazz. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it it was like it was it was an option. You could go for it, but it was just no explanation given. It was just like no encouragement of any kind. It it really was. I didn't really understand the genre before you know, getting a music education. So I, I guess to, to someone like my past self, like what would you say to them as far as like the public relations with the, the jazz community? Sure. Is that, a, is that a good way? Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I get what you're getting at. The yeah. jazz community can be a little insulated uh, and, and populated by musicians who have, have had the opportunity to learn about it. The most important thing probably is is to listen to the music. Yeah. The uh, yeah. <laughs> but as with anything, you have a you have a a huge number of albums that you could be checking out. And, you know, a lot of people will tell you, "Oh, you should listen to Kind of Blue," which yeah, that's a standard. <laughs> it is. It it's the best selling jazz record of all time. Oh oh yeah, wow. Yeah, and it is a great example of. It's a good midpoint for jazz, I would say, uh, where it's it's not your kind of roots of jazz, where you have like your New Orleans sound, mm-hmm. and it's not your modern thing where you have like fusion or or like post bop or any of these. Yeah. It's it's modal, is what we call it. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, or what everyone should call it. I shouldn't say we. Yeah, I'm keeping it to myself saying that. Yeah, gatekeeper. No. <laughs> but modal jazz is also great to listen to if you haven't had experience with jazz because mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't move in the kind of very specific harmony that jazz is kind of known for. Yeah, it's a little more. Um, it's a little slower paced. It's the underlying themes are are easier to catch. Now, is modal jazz, because, you know, modes are a term, like, in music theory. Oh, yeah. Is, is that derivative of, is because is, I am unaware of what defines modal jazz, if you if you want to dig into that a little bit. My understanding, and I'm, etymology. Uh, I'm no professor, <laughs> but my understanding of modal jazz, it has the name, yes, because of, of musical modes, mm-hmm. because of the emphasis on just improvising within the mode. Uh, okay. So That's what I thought you were getting at, Yeah. And not necessarily that you're using one mode the whole time. You might have a few, but you're sitting on the chords long enough that you really are exploring modes and you're thinking modally 
And what's nice about playing modal jazz is when you're learning improvisation, one of the things that you want to do early on is get a grasp on kind of the, the common modes, how they sound. And you have time to really, to really flex those Mm -hmm. like a muscle, not like you're bragging. (laughs) I mean, it's the same, it's the same man. English is weird. Continue. (laughs) Well, for example, the tune So What, which is one that most people yep. will recognize. Go ahead. So you've got, you've got, you get D Dorian for just ages, right? Yep. And then you get E flat Dorian, just a half step up. For us guitar players, that's easy. Yes. But two modes. And you get to you get to explore those as an improvisational concept, but you get all of the some of the defining features yeah. of jazz. The big one being the swing, mm. which us fusion players don't always do, <laughs> but is is crucial to the to what jazz is. And you get all, you know a lot of your just generally the style, the sound, just in this really nice, like freeing, more more easygoing thing. You know the. The the opposite, you might say. What was what uh, what Miles Davis was responding to was bebop, oh, which yeah. is your your classic constant eighth note yeah. uh, arpeggios with the long chromaticism and all these things, and your harmony is moving really fast. Yeah. You're adding substitute harmonies, mm-hmm. and that is is hard for the layperson to follow because it it builds on so much rather than being as um, kind of self-evident, I think, as modal jazz is. I think the modes in particular are one of those concepts that appeals naturally to a listener. You don't have to, like, work. You don't have to learn (laughs) the vocabulary as much as a listener as you do with other other music. And, you know, when you talk about what musical influences we have in music school, we can talk about atonal music, Right, which is a music Should that really, yeah, really requires a lot of the listener. So you can come to enjoy that music, but it, it is it is less approachable because it it is built on a certain background and a certain history and a certain skill set, even which is really difficult. I want to touch on one more thing before we transition into the next section. You've talked a lot about history and legacy when it comes to music. I was going to ask a more basic version of this, but I guess I already kind of know, so I'll, I'll phrase it differently. When when you are enjoying, like when you're doing critical, like active listening, how aware or how much does that legacy matter to you? Or not, not matter, but uh, how does that factor into your everyday enjoyment of any genre it doesn't have to be jazz. Would you say the question is about contextualizing music in terms of when it was made, or or understanding music in terms of its predecessors? Uh, uh a little bit of both. Leaning more on on the latter, as far as like acknowledging predecessors. Well, in, in jazz music, you've kind of got two angles, right? You have kind of the the instrumentation, the style of the actual like. When you play the head, right? Yeah, yeah. When you play the when the part when no one's improvising, yeah. or at least they're not taking solos, they're probably they might still be improvising. Yeah. They are still doing a bunch of stylistic things that you can pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And the other part of jazz is the improvisation techniques. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain 
improvisational ideas concepts. You know, we talk about chromatic patterns that you use, especially in bebop, where you're 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 trying to place notes in certain parts of the or certain notes on certain beats by adding chromaticism and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but for me personally, it's it's cool to be aware of that, and it can help you understand a musician and their and their vocabulary. You know, connect their their words to their meaning. And as far as new music, I think it's important that you that you be familiar with that music uh, and the old you know the old masters. Uh, but one of the things with the artist that I'm imagining we're going to be talking about in a bit, uh, Alan Holdsworth, <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, is the idea of of creating your own method. The idea of instead of doing the same approach that the people before you did, try to achieve what they did with a new a new approach. That's really cool that you say that. I'm like, it's like, oh my god, he agreed with me. I like that. No, <laughs> not uh, not not to that degree. But it's it's interesting because this is why I didn't want to have too much pre discussion because I wanted to see what we would say independently. And it, it is really interesting because I I didn't want to have a loaded question for you there because to me that is very important in in all genres of music and in even different mediums of art. Not even necessarily the history, but just any kind of context. You you can derive your own meaning from something, but at least having a base level of context will inform the initial intent. Because there, there's, there's a debate with art enthusiasts of like, does the authorial intent even matter? Uh, things take on different meanings and authors will be like, oh, I, I see something. Else. I think that's where what makes art great and gives it... Um, "Quote unquote replay value yeah. is that you can revisit it and get uh, something else out of it every time. Notice something different or pick at it differently as as you as a person change." Um, yeah, I feel I want to interject. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, in instrumental music, mm-hmm. it is an immense challenge to write instrumental music that that tells the other person what word you were thinking of. Yeah. Can you think of any piece that? Well, this is impossible—a piece that you haven't heard before. But if if you could, if you wrote something, right? Mm. You had a word, a prompt, and you were going to try to write something to yeah. communicate that word to someone else. Unless your word is like sadness, <laughs> you know, imagine yeah. a more a more difficult word. It's Dorian Minor, any yeah. <laughs> any, so any like that's the obvious one. So you'd have a you'd have a tough time doing that. And then in jazz music, even worse, you're trying to improvise that idea. And you know, in in one hand, what's great about the jazz improvisation is that you can express these kind of nonverbal emotions. That's kind of how I see it. You get this like tingling or some some feeling that you don't know what it's called, and the the improvisation lets you say it. But in some ways, that's kind of a, a way out. Yeah. And one thing I think that that some jazz music struggles to do is really communicate something, yeah. especially with the with the solos. It's it's on the listener and the musicians but as a musician it's a it's a tough challenge because you know you, you'd have a you'd probably have a better shot writing it out mm-hmm. but part of jazz is the spontan the spontaneous nature and the fact that you can interpret it in a flexible way it's something that's been on my mind a lot because the big project for me ever since I've graduated is to gain control over my improvisation you know make, make say clearer ideas with my instrumental improvisation and 
sometimes it seems impossible. And we're thankful, or I'm thankful anyway, that we have a convention of giving giving our tunes a title <laughs> so I can clue you guys in on what I'm thinking about. I have, I have to reference something. I, I have a great enjoyment for uh, the classic YouTubers, Game Grumps, and they... Uh, have you ever seen any of Ringo Starr of uh, Beatles fame? His his artwork from the early nineties and, and his paint. Uh, this is a classic for anyone who is familiar with Game Grooms, but they they reference it and uh, uh, brought that back to light. But it's it's uh, it's horrible. I'll, I'll show it to you. It's uh, they, they, there's a little quote in there that made me think about that. This is a little tangent, but they're just like, well, on a computer you have to call it something. So I have. Usually, if it's like you know a man with a hat, I call it man with hat. Yeah, <laughs> and that is so funny because uh, well, you know on the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've heard uh, I've heard John Schofield say that he doesn't name his tunes. He writes them and then he tells his wife to come up with something. Although uh, I happen to remember in an interview that my favorite John Schofield album, which is Combo Sixty Six, he did explain a lot of the titles. Uh-huh. I think he'd probably titled those yeah. since they had a specific meaning to him. Yeah. There's a, there's a subtitle to the, the numbered combo. You said combo number. Oh, combo 66. Combo 66. Yeah. There's no, uh, colon title or just, okay. No. Okay. I mean, that, that is a title. Uh, I was, I was going to say in the world of it's, like visual arts, untitled number blah is, is a title in well, of itself. If I remember correctly, he sixty six was his age at the time. Ah, okay. Oh, oh, all right. I did not. I wasn't picking up on what you were getting down with. I wasn't putting it down. I didn't tell you. <laughs> this, uh, this has been great so far. I thoroughly enjoying this. When you're writing, do you, do you start with like not one word prompts, but like a a, a feeling or a word in mind, and then write it? Is that what you're alluding to? No, uh, the opposite. Oh, okay. I, I write first and ask questions later. Yeah, I write stuff, uh, and a lot of times I'll have to I'll have to kind of dig and figure out what was on my mind when I wrote it. Because I was I was curious what your personal method was. Because I know you discussed uh, John John Schofield as, as someone as, as unacquainted with the genre as me. Uh, I do appreciate a lot of what you've shown me. You showed me lots of. Surprisingly, like you know, jazz guitarist with uh, <laughs> with bands, uh, he he's great. I really love his tone. I love um, as as an appreciator of of you know something with production value. Uh, for all the listeners at home, I experiment a bit with electronic music. The electric guitar is like the first version of that. Like you have you know your little your definitely more knowledgeable, but there's a lot of like guitar engineers specifically in the industry that, you know, they didn't go to school for this. They just, they are guitarists that are gearheads. That's, that's its own sub area of, of production. The guitar players who aren't gearheads are, are blessed. <laughs> Wait, oh, I thought you were going to say blah. No, they're, they're, they're blessed. blessed. Never mind. Uh, no offense. But to they're rare. <laughs> oh, okay. They're they're rare. You're saying it's, it's a curse. Yeah. So when you when you start really getting interested in in gear, well, you've experienced this. I'm yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, oh God. You <laughs> you start going down this rabbit hole, and you you get ideas for what you want your sound to be, and you buy stuff, and it 
does or doesn't do it. You know, I'm very lucky that we live in an, an era where you can buy one amp that can simulate a thousand things and you can get close enough not to buy something else. Do you want to talk about your sponsorship from Fender and how they sent you the Fender bus? He's not sponsored. Fender this sends, is a joke. Fender sends me nothing. I would love to be sponsored by ESP. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't, they don't make an amp. They don't need to. Uh, but I love their guitars. Uh, but I do use a Fender amp, yeah. Well, I, just, I just knew specifically, do we want to talk specifics? It's, it's, the, it's a Fender Mustang GT GTX 100. GTX 100. It's 100-watt. Yeah, yeah, it's um, that's your workhorse. That's your baby. It is. It's pretty much the only amp I use anymore. The only critique I have is that if you're if you're right next to it, it doesn't really like it doesn't it doesn't fill up like a tube amp does. Sure, but by the time you're like five feet away from it, it doesn't matter. Well, uh, how much does the cab matter outside of um, being a practice amp? And, the, and, the cabinet is actually a huge, a huge deal. Uh, there's yeah. been a bunch of stuff going around online about that recently. Really? Uh, oh, I'm very surprised. Tell me. Yeah. So the speaker and the cabinet have a lot to do with the the actual frequency response. Yeah. Of a of a guitar amp. For different gear, but for something like that that emulates so many sounds, to my knowledge, is that it, not generic, but that it, it's a you know, kind of like a monitor type driver in there uh, that can replicate lots of sounds that you can have it. Does it emulate other cab? Yeah, it, it does. the output, it'll emulate other. Yeah, it cabs. has. Well, in the in the software on it, you can pick what cabinet you want it to try and sound like. Uh-huh. What's funny is you can pick like four by 12s, but the, uh, the <laughs> amp's only got one. Well, that, <laughs> I mean, it, it will, the the simulated output will simulate that and it'll sort of sound like that coming out the front but it won't like i said it, it won't it won't fill the acoustic space in that way you know you'll be you'll be lacking some of that low end the way that yeah. a, a real big four by 12 cab will but you know for me that's not a big deal and i'm not going for that that's like a rock thing and i like i like rock but uh, i'm not trying to cover up my bass player like that <laughs> that's what i meant is that uh, during like vibes and in a performance, you're mostly taking the out, like not the sound coming out of the cabinet. But for, for those that don't know, uh, you have XLR, you have microphone outputs that can come from an amp to go into a PA system. Yeah. Uh, well, we used that the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, some Sometimes the engineer at the venue prefers to put a mic on there just because they're used to it. Um, I think one reason is... It is. It's a little more safe. You never know what wacky thing someone's got oh, put on their amp. And, yeah. Well, not just noisy outputs, but on the Fender amp, you can set how loud the out is. You could be clipping oh, your XLR out. Yeah, As an audio right. engineer, I can understand not wanting to risk someone just having their amp set up poorly. That is true too. That is that is a justifiable angle of it. Well. I, I would love to talk about gear all day, but we... I would not. We're <laughs> I, 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 I like looking at it on the internet, yeah. but it's much less interesting than talking about I, music. I know. I don't want to bore the people at home either. So we're... Uh, um, I, I guess to wrap up, it's like, you know, talk about uh, your performance you just did. So, um, you know, Joseph Fisher, I'd mentioned earlier, is doing a takeover at um, this bar. It's located in Pantigo. It's, you know, yeah. Arlington area. Uh, shout out to Dr. Jekyll's Beer Lab. 
Yeah. Uh, they, they make pretty good stuff. They premiered a new beer uh, at St. Patrick's Day. I don't, you're not an enjoyer. We talked about this the other day. I have a hard time finding beers I like, especially, you know, your local stuff is going to be pretty, pretty uh, bitter. This I'm, isn't a beer podcast, so I'm not going to go into the, the flavor notes of that. That's not what this is about. I won't embarrass myself by talking about it in any amount of detail either. Yeah. Well, uh, they, they do fine work, but, um, you know, he, he knows the, the owners pretty well and was able, he has shows with various projects now so until Joseph April. Does. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Not the owner. Thank you for clarifying. No, Joseph, my jo- not me. I mean, not it, yet. Not, it's, uh, I know, I know Joseph. Yes. Uh, and Joseph knows people at Jekyll's. I have played there before, yeah. uh, with other groups. Yes. Do you want to talk about uh, Yasmin's band and that yeah. stuff? Is that something you want to do? Well, that's been a huge influence on me, Yasmin's yeah. band. Mm-hmm. Uh, both an influence on what I have been writing and just on my in, my growth as a musician. Uh, as When I was learning jazz, and I still am learning jazz, but earlier on in my journey learning yeah. it, my goal was just not to play sour notes. That's a start. You know, they call it an avoid tone. Have you heard that before? No, I've not heard it referred to as such. Well, target tones is a common idea in jazz. You have a, a note that you know you want, like a C major is coming up and you want to play E. Okay. Yeah. Oh. So we okay, call that a target okay. tone. You play a line that gets you to E. Interesting. Um, and then an avoid tone is your opposite. It's a note that you know is going to sound bad and you regret it if you play it. Okay. You know, that's you playing like a B natural on a C7. Yeah. 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 No. There's just, you You Too have a hard tension. time, yeah. you have a hard time justifying that note. A B flat though, flat seven. That, that's a, that's fine. That's cool. I like that sound. Third and the seventh. Those are your butter notes. Eh? That's what they say, right? Yeah. I, isn't that odd to think about the psychology? Man, I, I could talk about like go on so many tangents, but we, we will bring it back. But as far as the psychology of music, we're, Half step apart. We're going to say that. I'm not going to get into the specific frequencies or something, but you have those that it's like, you know, that that's considered like a spicy note when you're playing uh, minor seconds like that, those sure. intervals. Uh, but then you put an octave in between it. It's actually kind of pleasant when you have a, a minor ninth. I quite enjoy that. A minor ninth is, is that's the challenge nowadays. Really? Is, is because people weren't in the past, your minor ninth is like for your dominant chord. Right, your minor ninth is your um, your A flat in yeah. C minor. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it that's like your diatonic use of it, but you know, imagine what a major chord with a minor nine. How how well, right? uh, how do you? There's there are ways you can you can voice it to make it work, and same with with a minor chord with a minor nine. Usually, mm-hmm. it's kind of gross to have the minor nine in there if you're not doing a dominant chord. Are are you are you saying with the seventh in there as well, or you want to drop the seventh? Uh, well, that's up to you. <laughs> the minor ninth is my only concern right now. I see, I see. So the you know justifying your minor ninth, I've noticed that in modern like composition, that's mm-hmm. kind of a trademark. Is what what are people's favorite ways to make minor nine work? Yeah, you know how do they fill that out? You know, there's this concept that I heard from. Um, one of the Jacob Collier interviews, uh-huh. you know, of well, course, because I'm a, I'm, I went to music Do you know the title of this specifically the, for the people at home? If you YouTube interview with Jacob Collier or something similar, <laughs> uh, the channel is, is June Lee's channel. Oh, yeah. 
Um, you can maybe this was just in a June Lee video. Actually, it might not have been in the interview. Yeah, yeah. Scratch that. I remember what video it's from. <laughs> June Lee has a video about modern reharmonization. Okay. Oh, you've shown me this. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. and the premise. I'll link it that, in the script. Yeah, the premise right. at the end is you can pick any root note and any melody note, mm-hmm. and you can you can make something work. Yep. You and if your voice leading is good, you can really get away with almost anything. Exactly. So um, people will find their favorites, and that's kind of one of the defining features of the kind of modern harmony. I feel like that's almost already on the way out, though. I get a little bit. I'm in an interesting place with my music where I'm not writing out specific voicings for anything, and when I when I do, it's tough to get an improvisation working with that. Because you end up with these like dependencies oh, I see. that certain yeah. notes are certain places in the chord. You know, usually if you write G seven, you can invert it however you want. Right, right. But if you've got some, if you've got something where you want some really weird dissonance in there, sometimes moving things in the octaves just messes up. Yeah, uh, I'm not using the right terminology, but that's not the the bones of the chord. The uh the, those would be more like like passing tones that you would or sorry. <laughs> that that brings me back to the idea of having things be more open-ended and spontaneous and having things be more intricate. Yeah. Cuz I have I have things that I've written that are like that where the voicings are very particular and I've noticed that they don't work if you change the voicing. So to to make that happen, I either have to get a keyboard player who I really trust to only <laughs> to only do things that will still work that will unbeknownst to me because I don't I haven't found them. Yeah. Uh, or make that like a requirement to play it that way. Sure. Honestly, you know, I I don't mind just writing out the chord. <laughs> but it will it will it will change the vibe because people do change up their voicings when they're comping in jazz. Well, you, uh, you mentioned having a good pianist. I actually, we, we, we got to wrap up cause I, I will, I will talk about theory and geek stuff. Like I, th- this is difficult for us since we, we, we hang, we hang outside of these recordings. Uh, so we can, sometimes I'm forgetting that we're recording right now. We're, we're just having a conversation. This is normal, but you get to peek into this a little bit. So, to wrap this up before the very end, uh, before we finish this episode, do you want to talk about uh, the members of the Jesse Katz group? Yeah, yeah, we got a really nice, we got a really nice lineup. Uh, you know, UTA people, of course, <laughs> and we had you know just a quartet. It was me, uh, Daniel Kabi on keys, who I met through Joseph. Um, I had seen him around, but he he's he is a bit younger than me and. I have nothing but good things to say about him. Yeah, uh, he's always been a super, super easy guy to talk to, uh, and a super good, super good player. Mm-hmm. So uh, we got him. We got David Spates, a longtime friend of mine from from UTA. Right. Uh, he played on he played on the album. Yes, we haven't even talked about your album from uh, 20, 2021. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about Footprints on the Bridge? Well, let me let me credit my drummer. Oh, first. sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, Taylor and Katase for. Was playing was sound like she's the fourth. Taylor and Katase <laughs> was playing drums. Uh, we work together where I teach. We see each other a lot, and she's just she plays with the best feel. I think she does. I I was very surprised. Uh, like Taylor, if you're listening, your your style is like 
just the right amount of aggressive. Like it, it, it hits hard. Uh, that might be too harsh of a word, but it's like you, you're very confident. You have to be when you're part of the rhythm section. Like, you know, you see some drummers, especially like you know, for you for fusion, it's a little harder hitting. Like you know, we're talking the power inside of like that um, flavor of jazz. Yeah. But um, you know, she she definitely brought like that attitude, and you you can't you can't be timid when you're doing something like that. There, there's uh, you know, the softness, especially when you're going for like brush, like you know, swing style. But um, she was very like hard hitting, like you know. Yeah, she digs in. Yeah, yeah, it was great. So I guess, yeah, like Footprints Under the Bridge. Uh, I wanted to record all my tunes that I was writing at UTA, mm-hmm. and I wanted to wanted to get all my all my combo mates on the recording. Yeah. So that was what we did while I was at UTA. Whenever I was whenever I was playing in a combo, yeah. I would write a tune for the for the combo. So I collected those up, got people together who had been in like the last two combos that I had played in at UTA. That was, we, we went to a, a friend's, friend's place to record it, Chad Huffines. Riverhaven Studio. Super, super awesome guy. And yeah, we knocked it out. We did two sessions, one with one band and one with the other. Yeah, super fun project. You know, I've come a long way since that one. I'm ready to, uh, to top it with the next one. But it was so fun. We learned so much. Without that album, we wouldn't have you know the tunes that I have now, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be playing those tunes like I do now. You know, I have I feel like I have a lot of experience under my belt after that project, and having all this time to reflect on it, it's done a lot for for my jazz writing. Well, uh, with that in mind, uh, you played some new music at the show this past Friday. Yeah, mostly. Uh, where where can people find your music, Mister Jesse Katz? Well, I publish everything under my own legal name. Links in the description. I'm going to have all of Jesse's socials like down there for y'all to go check him out. You can see some clips of a show he just played. Uh, we'll include some of the videos and other things we're referencing down there if possible. If not, uh, holler at us in the comments. And it's like, hey, where's that thing you were talking about? Where is it at? But yeah, Nell Word. Yeah, big influence on me. Not a, well... He is. He does have a jazz background. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, he has a. Uh, yeah, um, I believe he studied at the. Um, you know, if I can't remember, I won't. <laughs> I won't throw out a, a a wrong answer. But yeah, he 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 is a brilliant guitarist and songwriter and singer and producer. I would say he really he's really in the avenue that I'm not in as much as I'd like to be, which is the sound design that that gets you the whole the whole picture in one one person and he, yeah he's just a really inspiring guy he tries everything and he has this really identifiable style to him it's always it's always exciting you always yeah. feel like you always feel like you can't really predict what he's doing next <laughs> but you know it's going to be it's going to be fun and you're going to be into it you know you're going to be listening to it for the on repeat for the next few months at least i i do yeah well, uh, today for our, our premiere episode, we're having an extra long session for y'all today. To to wrap up this part, when when can we expect new music, a new release from you? That's a great question. I know what I want to do. We're gonna we're gonna put out the new music from the show, uh, but it's not recorded yet. So the timeline, I can't really give you one. But uh, you can rest assured that we're working on it. I do have 
I almost forgot about this. Oh. Last year we did record a single. Oh, that yes. will that will come out Ooh. this year. Is that a surprise? No, it'll come out this oh, year. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and that one, uh, I'm, is it, I'm exploring what we call time no changes. Yes. Or free jazz, uh, in a sense, where we have no chords. Yeah, it it's it's exciting. I've gotten a sneak preview of it. Um, look forward to that in the near future, coming soon. For this next section of the show, uh, we're going to move out of the, the interview territory now and talk a little bit about like pop culture large, you know, specifically music, uh, some other things. Uh, you know, We're going to establish a baseline as the show goes along. But prior to our interview, uh, we had some selections to share with each other. This is something oh, yeah. that, uh, a precedent that we are trying to set as far as like intentional listening and, and sharing of music. So... Do you want to talk about some of you mentioned it briefly, your selections from Alan Holdsworth and I can jump in there. I want, I want to hear why. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let y'all know what, what I, I picked. Yes. Uh, my, my, my go-to was off of the uh, 1984 live album in mm. Japan. It has a boring name, like live in Japan, yeah. 1984. Naturally. And uh, the second track, they play the tune called Road Games. And for me, Road Games does a lot of things that I like conceptually. Uh, I also just love Alan's playing. The more I've... It's taken me a while to get into him, uh, but I've, I've learned a little bit of, of some of his stuff and and really spent some time listening. And uh, he really... He's really quite the quite the player and quite the mind. Well, uh, was he singing on those cuts? No. Was that his voice or... Uh, he, the singer on, in this album is Paul Williams. So it's live in Japan, 1984. What were the tunes you showed me? You showed me two tunes. Yeah. Road games, Road games. uh, and Tokyo dream. Tokyo dream. Yeah. Okay. So road games, uh, I am wanting to get back into vocals. I used to sing all the pop punk music. Yeah. I still do. If you hire me to do that. If you listen to footprints on the bridge, his cover for Nellwood is his voice including uh, backup vocals from a, a guest. But yes, that that is, if you haven't figured it out, that is Jesse's voice on the album. Yeah. <laughs> I like how Road Games works. It's got sort of a groove that they, that they commit to in the main part where the singing is happening. And what I really like in this live version that you unfortunately won't hear in the album version, probably because Alan came up with it after they recorded it, uh, is there? There's a, a bunch of little, really spicy chords that he throws in during that first part with the singing. I love yeah. that because okay. it it interjects this like outside feel into what at that moment is is more standard harmony. And then you get the well at the very beginning. I didn't even talk about the lick. That they, the band all plays together. Oh gosh, it, it's like like blinking, you'll miss it. We were having issues with Spotify, and it's like, wait, start it over. Yeah, like hey, you missed the first four sixteenth notes. Yeah, it was all squeezed into half a second. They do the the bum, 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 you know the the like chord <laughs> melody part. Yeah, that is super hip, and they then you have there's some more stuff. There's like the tapping section, and 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 that's that's cool too. Uh, but Alan's solo comes in. It's it's so out there. Yeah. And it's it's great. I love that. 
you go from this like sort of almost 80s rock feel and it's still kind of going but there's no mistaking that his guitar playing is not your typical you know rock vocabulary no not at all is that uh are those bebop licks am i am i saying the wrong or like what i wouldn't i wouldn't describe them as as bebop there's there's the chromaticism for sure yeah the uh, the most the most clear influence you can draw for for Alan's approach uh, is John Coltrane, I would say. Okay. And he's he said as much in in interviews that he was really inspired by Coltrane. Yeah. Coltrane's known for the 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 sheets of sound. Yeah. Which is where you're you're running up and down scales mm. because you're trying to imply these kind of odd scales, uh, and the only way to do it is to fit them. Yeah. In the in the measure. And it's written with that in mind as far as like the notes and structure, but very much sonically, it, it sounds not not hair metal, but uh, like, I mean, it, it's 1984, uh, but you know, like the, uh, what, what's a better description? Holdsworth strikes another chord with me uh, <laughs> on the sound design front, because we've talked about this a little bit. And one of the things I like about fusion is that fusion musicians open up more to sound design in their music. Yeah. You know, because they're playing electronic instruments, they get a lot of say in the timbre and the response of their instrument. You know, for Holdsworth, he was, had a very unique vision for what he wanted his guitar to sound like. And he's going back and forth between this almost keyboard vibe and this, like, saxophone, I, the, the saxophone sort of thing. Let, let's establish the instrumentation for a second because uh, I'm thinking of it so, like, some of it was he playing with the keyboard in unison at some point. There's no no keyboard. There's That's no keyboard. a trio. So oh, oh okay, so it's well, it's this Mr. Alan Holdsworth. Paul Williams makes it quartet. Okay, uh, you know him on guitar, of course. Jimmy Johnson drums. on uh, bass. On bass. And Chad Wackerman on the drums. Okay, and the three of them plus what was the vocalist name? Uh, Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Interesting. Yeah, they're okay. That's awesome. I I guess I. I didn't catch that. This is why I wanted like your take before I said it, before I told you anything. Because you're right, it does have a keyboard like texture to it, where it's yeah. not, it's not plain. It it sounds like a like a road. It's, it's not. It's on the cusp of distorting, where it's like you just hear it coming through. Like if you ever listen to like an old roads, like the built-in speakers on those. And yeah, I can is see that, that an app? You would you agree? I think that the big thing for his clean sound. Is yeah, there's a, there's I, there's a bit of breakup, just just a hair, and the chorus mm-hmm. effect, uh, and yeah. I, I I I couldn't tell you if that's a keyboard thing or just because uh, if your guitar's intonation is any kind of wrong, his music sounds pretty <laughs> pretty <laughs> pretty it's, it's pretty pretty. Well, no, it sounds. <laughs> oh, I've learned some of his stuff, and if you don't have your bridge set up right, uh, oh. some of those chords will will wreck your ears. Like you just you have to be in tune. Yeah, you, you have to be on the. To it, make you have it work. to. You have to be pretty close because if you're not, the dissonances will will get really, really harsh. In guitar world, unfortunately, intonation is not everyone's top priority. Well, it's never perfect, uh, and it's it doesn't on a lot of guitars. It doesn't stay the same over time, so you have to be watching out for it. And you know, when you're touring, you're going to all different climates. That's one theory from my mind. I suppose there's probably an interview where he talks about. What uh, what his clean tone is and why he likes it. I'm probably not contributing anything <laughs> by speculating. Oh, yeah. No, uh, I but mean, the, I think it's interesting to speculate. Like, what do you think? And then, you know, if someone if someone knows or if someone wants to do the digging, I mean, I'll, I'm gonna look 
it up afterwards. I can look it up while we're talking if you're curious. Yeah, we could. Yeah, there's a um, but uh, all that to say, yeah, that sound design. You know, you in the world of of traditional jazz, you would never have that sonic exploration, and that's one thing that's very exciting to me. I agree. Um, I can't remember if we mentioned before or earlier as far as um, guitar being maybe one of the first electronic instruments, uh, the electric guitar uh, prior to the synthesizer. Was that the fifties or sixties that that was uh, properly came to market? Not my uh, not my area of expertise. Well, I should know that. I'm ashamed that I I don't have a definitive answer right now. Uh, uh, but do you think that's because he has a background in guitar? Uh, how how old was he uh, in the '80s? Like when when that show was recorded? I think he was in his early 30s, maybe. How? Oh, okay. So he, like he wasn't maybe maybe older than that. I feel like there's like a level of maturity that kind of comes with with that. It it sounds more sophisticated. It, I don't know why. Like I mean, it, it doesn't make that big of a difference. But maybe I'm just speculating. But it's like, you know. I'm, I'm so bad. So Tokyo Dream was the second one. Yeah. Tokyo Dream, uh, as far as we're talking about conveyance with like instrumental music, very atmospheric. It yeah, it it has like a because this is what I I like about music uh, outside of like lyricism is the ambiguity. Yeah, the, the not as literal like the more ethereal nature where it's like you know I, I I've talked to you about this but y'all will hear this for the first time. For me, music it's like your out of all of your senses, it's like your ears are second only to to your eyesight as far as like predominance in your worldview, like in your brain, uh, and you know the psychology and, and science behind that. But it's it there's a lot more resolution if we're talking about like you know hertz versus like pixels. If you they're they're not it's not quite the same translation, but some people make that comparison. Yeah, um, it's it's not as concrete as i would say like visual mediums you can get very abstract i mean that that is its own genre in the, the visual arts but uh, i feel like sonically music in, inherently leans towards the abstract and uh, i feel like um songwriting and lyricism is what grounds things and gives stuff context without going outside of the music outside of the song so bringing it back tokyo tokyo dream tokyo dream I'll get it right, I promise. Tokyo Dream. Editor me is going to take that sample and replace every time I've flubbed it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying that so uh, my editor knows what to do with this later. Um, Tokyo Dream has that sort of conveyance of it. It's not a literal idea, but it, it sounds very worldly, if that makes sense. Like uh, lots of life experience. Maybe. My understanding is he was, well, you know, I couldn't tell you what age he wrote it haven't gone that deep in my research yeah i know the story behind it okay uh, he was do you he was, tell he was playing in america and he had he had a following uh-huh. some some people from japan who were really interested in what he was doing who were in the in the country and so he thought wow we could really we could probably do really well over there uh and he wrote that basically for that reason uh either either as a tribute to those fans or as just a celebration of that <laughs> That dream to play there, which he opens the album by saying that it had been a dream for a long time, and now they they're there. That is that is a literal. Uh, I'm not saying that like literal is like that's very simple. Uh, no, that 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 that's a. Um, I mean, that's straight from you know your secondhand source. 
as far as that goes. Uh, yeah, I there's there's a a very interesting database of Alan Holdsworth interviews and interviews with people who knew him, mm. uh, where I've picked he, up little factoids like that. Has he passed? Is he still alive? Yes, oh, he passed. Time? Oh, when? yeah, yeah. While we were at UTA, actually. Oh. If I remember funny. correctly, he actually passed on my birthday. Oh. Uh, which is not. That's uh, feels bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Unfortunate. It's that. an unfortunate coincidence for yeah. me. Uh, how old was it? I can do the math in my head. How old was he then? I don't remember. Something? That seems no. He's probably eighty. So th- I mean, that, that's on the younger side. Um, I don't know. I want to speculate like on his life. I, you, you know the man more than I do. Like you know, but I, I've I've just read some stuff. It's it's always tragic. Um, you know, just losing something like that. But you know, that's why. Artists do what they do is to have something like afterwards, you know, at least my perspective. I think that's why a lot of people, whether initially or not, you know, that's the beauty of it is uh, having having your ideas written down in a way that people can still feel your presence after death. Sure. I guess. Uh, This guy, uh, super deep, (laughs) very quickly. Uh, do you want to change gears? Oh, yeah. I, I imagine you want me to talk about the yes. the music that you showed me. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your history with this artist? Do you want to introduce the the man, Sonny Moore of First Alas, a.k.a. Uh, Skrillex? Yeah, sure. We did a whole 180 uh, talking about EDM. Like you, you talked about some of your... Actually, the, uh, I, I think I, I have a more clear picture now, but but go ahead. I want to, I want to hear what you have to say first. Mr. Well, Guest. yeah, my my story with with Skrillex, which is not a very riveting one, <laughs> but it you know it starts when uh, I heard what was it first of the year Equinox. Yep, I think it was the exact same word. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the robot arm sounding one. Oh, uh, is yeah, that, is that someone's is, totally, is that sampled from that toy? Is no, that what you're I, I'm not saying that. I'm oh, some, someone someone told me it sounded like a robot arm moving around, and I can't unhear it. I'll have to listen to it carefully. I mean, because I, I know generally with a dubstep in bass music, people are it's like, it sounds like robot intercourse. I'm going to keep it PG, but uh, sure. yeah, not that our, our sponsors cared. But yeah, I was very interested in that music. Uh, you know, I kind of made my way listening to the dubstep genre. This would have been when I was in middle school. Yeah. Uh, and I remember playing guitar at the time because I, I thought I was going to be the first person to have the idea to like play guitar covers of dubstep music and I was not of course and I just didn't do it because I wasn't the first yeah. oh. were you aware at the time or are you now that he plays guitar no I knew okay, um, okay. yeah I do I like to you know look at a little bit into artists I mean I was I was pretty into into his music for a while so I did look into him a bit and I I, I don't think I, I remember like listening to something from the band and not really just kind of moving on yeah uh, I don't. Uh, if I went back to it, maybe I would. I would. I would listen to it again. But I was all in on dubstep, so I kind of just. I was like, now nah, I want to hear the dubstep. I've heard um, interesting retroactive appreciation for from first to last. Yeah, they opened for Fall Out Boy a lot. This is actually referenced on the album. I I, sh- uh, I showed you the opening song. Uh, so for for context, 
about a month ago now. Skrillex, it, it had been a minute since he put out any any full length projects. Lots of singles, lots of collaborations as as a producer. Um, his journey has has taken quite a turn. But you know, bringing it back, he had released two albums, not a, a double album, but first Quest for Fire, which is what I showed you from, and then secondarily Don't Get Too Close, which come from two. They're very intentional, and I see why he separated out. I didn't tell you about this before. What what were your thoughts on on those new songs as like an old enjoyer? Because I, I know you've you don't have any not disdain, but just just not fell out of love. Yeah, but, but you I, moved on to different things. I haven't listened to dubstep. You know, I haven't like gone and pulled it up on Spotify in a very long time. Sure. I I think at some point I felt like I had heard most of what I was interested in hearing, and I was there was a specific time where I really wanted to start writing guitar music. I remember actually because I was I remember I had like FL Studio, oh, uh, yeah. and I wanted to make little EDM songs. <laughs> uh, and at some point I was like, I want to do guitar music, and I didn't come back to it after that. You never thought of of mashing the two up like well, some, I some classic drum and bass. I, I mean, I, I thought about it, but I was, I had this um, image for what I wanted to do at the time. And remember, this is like, you know, this is probably like eighth grade. Yeah, 2011. So what I wanted to do was I was like, I was going to have a rock trio. That was my idea. Oh. Uh, so the dubstep would not be, would not be part <laughs> of it. Would, would you be surprised to hear that EDM enthusiast, both at the time and now, consider his old music to it's not dubstep i'm aware genres i'm aware of the contention surrounding the the term dubstep yeah uh because i've read and listened to some of the original like you know uk scene stuff that is very very different in its like style and its musical goals yeah so i didn't understand why people were bent out of shape out of it when i was younger because i was just like oh no the new stuff's so much cooler But now, now that I've, I've you know, had more time to reflect, and I read some article actually about it a while ago. Uh, they were talking about how the uh, the evolution of genres can kind of put certain people out artistically. Yeah. And they they were talking about the original dubstep artists and how when dubstep changed into like this party music, mm-hmm. that they were having a hard time finding avenues to ex- to bring out their music and express oh, yeah. themselves. Like the rave scene that happened in the 2010s. Yeah. Do you do you think he was responsible or he was just what uh, Skrillex? Yeah. Do you hold him responsible for the rave era? No, I'm, Skrillex. I'm kidding. No, Skrillex I, I was it. making fun music. Yeah, you can you can hear like the influence of like metal. Yes. And one of the things that was so exciting about dubstep is not only do you have this this super rhythmic heavy sound, but the actual sonic space yeah. is so much different than what you were you would have been used to at the time. Yes. The sounds that you're hearing are all so new and different and each one has some crazy new sound in it. And that was that's where I'm saying it was my first brush with uh with the sound design. It's like what made dubstep exciting was the sound design for me. Uh you know the rhythmic nature was was crucial I think for it to be as enjoyable as it is. Yeah. Uh, but that super rhythmic setup let you do so much. Like it, it made it so you could try all this crazy stuff 
And it's almost like the weirder it was, the cooler it was. <laughs> and that's one of those things that jazz musicians kind of would gel with too. That's true. Because they're uh, definitely like in 2015, in the middle of the past decade, there was there was a point where it's like, whatever sticks. Like, like it, it, it was like kind of outdoing each other where it's like, you know, I don't have this opinion, but it's like, you know, just the idea. It's like, is this even music anymore? Is it noise? <laughs> but uh, I will say... I have two thoughts and why, why I had these uh, in mind for you for a while, like knowing your, your past enjoyment of his music. Uh, do you think that he got as popular as he did because he came at it from, you know, his background in, I guess like um, post punk, like bands, like, like, like his, his rock background influenced that where he wrote like a rock musician in electronic fashion. I think that was definitely an element when I was listening to him, the thing that I thought set him apart was detail. Uh, I thought there were a lot of a lot of things to latch onto mm-hmm. in a lot of in yeah. a lot of the music, uh, especially when when Bangarang came out. I felt like there were so many elements to listen to and pick out yeah. on that album compared to a lot of the other artists I was listening to at the time. There's a second part to this. I'll get to, but it's like I, I completely agree, and that's where my enjoyment comes from. Uh, not saying anyone like, you know, his enjoyment is more or less intellectual, but um, at least from my perspective, I do think that a lot of people engaged with that genre on a very superficial level um, uh. in in the mainstream space where it's just like, you know, go to the club, turn your brain off, just feel the bass. But, uh, but you're right. It's like there's lots of intricacies that appealed to me. Which is why I want to ask you, it's like, do you think that some part of you, that's what inspired you to open up a DAW or like, you know, led you on your journey, like of being an audio engineer? Well, there's definitely in the time where I was pursuing dubstep, it was about making something that sounded cool. Yeah. Which is not the, my favorite motivator. (laughs) It's a good one. Yeah. But it's, um, it, it turned out not to be as satisfying as, you know, making your priority expressiveness sure or like trying to trying to what I think is really fun is trying to channel some very specific emotion yeah I think that is one of the most fun things when you're writing music is to come up with something really really wild and specific I like to talk about uh, footprints under the bridge the the track called footprints yeah, under the bridge titled, yeah that has it's a very specific feeling it's the premise is there's footprints under a bridge and this uh-huh. is a real bridge yes it, it's not. It's not metaphorical. No, this is a, a place where you grew up. Yeah. So there's a bridge, uh, and you know it's kind of like kind of sandy dirt under. So you see mm-hmm. these footprints under there when you go under the bridge. Right. And also under the bridge is all this graffiti. Well, so I would go under the bridge and I would just hang out. You know, I'd go hang out when the, like the sun is going down and listen to something yeah. on my on my earbuds, and you'd have this sort of solidarity with the other people who visit the bridge. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're not sure if you want to meet them because, uh, <laughs> you know, me being like young, I, I, I didn't want to, I, I was like, Straight I don't know if danger. I want to, yeah, yeah, I don't want to meet these people who are, who are writing obscene things on the walls of a, <laughs> of a bridge. So uh, it's this like, with those cats. <laughs> so it's this uneasy solidarity. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's such a weird feeling. It takes a long time to explain it with words. But with the tune, it came pretty naturally to me to to express it with the with the music that I did, because because you've referenced the bridge itself. Um, I don't know. We haven't. I haven't been there with you. 
I don't think yet. Well, depending on when you go, you may not get to see much graffiti. They they paint it over every now and then. Uh gentrification. I don't. I don't. I'm just kidding. That well, some is, of it's always. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being superficial. I, I'm not saying you have to be uh, as hokey as me, but I've, there's a dynamic. Uh, I I do like the the kind of passive anonymous <laughs> exchange. Of graffiti in like a public place. Yeah. You know, specifically a place like that where it's not like you're just going out in the middle of nowhere to write your name. It's going to be seen. It's, yeah, it's, it's like a little, a little, it's like a, an internet forum in real life, you know, it's kind of a fun idea. So you, that's, that is probably what I found to be the most fun. And I also, I will, I will say this all the time that I also really love. This is a simple emotion, but it's a good one. I love bitter. Uh, that is also really fun to write, really fun to play, mm-hmm. really fun to sing when you are feeling bitter. Yeah. Or if you're feeling sad, because it's a little more fun to feel bitter than sad, I think. Well, uh, let's bring it back to the original topic, because I, yeah. I, I do think there's a, an element of that, because uh, there, there is a perception. Like There, there were other groups like the Prodigy uh, in the 90s, uh, lots of um, like Moby, like other inspirations. Um, Aphex Twin, those are the things that come to mind that I know uh, Sonny Moore, Skrillex, was aware of. Uh, He's about kind of more, more artsy, electronic stuff, right? Uh, yeah, a, li- a little bit. Uh, uh, the, <laughs> the, 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 uh, there are people that call it IDM, intellectual dance I've heard music, that. and yeah. he hates it. Well, you and I, his we first li- name is James uh, of Aphex Twin. I forgot his last name. Well, you and I both, we've listened to you. We listened to Sevish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, th- that's a microtonal. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That, um, that is fun stuff. We're not going to get in the weeds in it. Look up Sevish. Uh, spell, spell it for me. I forget how to spell it. S-E-V-I-S-H. There you go. If you're interested in microtonal electronic music, take a listen. The The cuts I showed you, we talked a lot about his music because he, ha- he has a legacy now with our generation. Um, what did you think of the two songs I showed you? The very beginning of Quest for Fire, Leave Me Like This, and the end, um, featuring Porter Robinson. I didn't tell you that earlier. Still Here was the name of the, the ending track. You said Porter Robinson was on the ending one? Yes. Okay. Uh, the first one, yeah, the first one felt like a throwback, but it, it was fresh in its sound. Yeah. Uh, it grooved. I, I, I dug it. The, uh, the ending one... Was tough for me to get for me to get into just because I, I didn't feel like as much happened. The ending one, uh, it was well, one thing with with dance music is they're gonna repeat a lot because they, you know you're supposed to do a groove and it's the same with like funk or anything else. Yeah. Uh, but if if you're gonna enjoy something with that kind of repetition, you've got to be into the style. I I ought to have uh, showed you a more eclectic uh, bit yeah. of it because I re- I was like yeah well, let's bookend it because. Um, the album itself is self-referential to his past. Like if you know, like, you know, we well, yeah, about I heard the sample from, yeah, from the beginning. Um, the other, the second album, don't get too close. Um, actually the, the vocal sample, he credits it's, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to look at it really quick before I butcher her name. Um, but it's, it's the end song of the other album is a vocal cut from that. Okay. Um, and, there was something he put. It's um, Clip Town Imperior is something he posted to YouTube. the The context was that he was trying out a feature in Ableton that was like bounce to DSP, 
in 2020, you know, in the middle of the world ending, um, he'd put out his first thing in a while. So that was like the first feeler of new music and that elements of that are used heavily at the end. So it's kind of referencing like the beginning of this cycle. So it is more like a victory lap. Um, it's a nice end track, but there's lots more eclectic cuts that I would suggest, you know, my interpretation of the title of the album is quest for fire, you know, for fire beats. He's it's an exploration yeah. of, of sound. Yeah. Um, okay. that's the, um, I feel like the reason there are two albums is like a divergent, um, in, in his career. I like to look at as far as like legacy and history. It's like the meta contextual, like what is the story that's being told of the artist quest for fire is all, like, you know, more of a throwback, like you said, to the influences like classic dance music with sonic, you know, exploration, something that sounds like more more modern and it would appeal to his audience. And um, I don't want to be down on it. Uh, I do not enjoy Don't Get Too Close as much. It leans on Quest for Fire quite a bit. I think I, think I can say like, you know, that we're a month in, a lot of people kind of feel the same. It is the more producer side of him, the more pop heavy things where it's like, I think he gets lost in the mix or the, the guests kind of take over a bit on that one, in my opinion. But that's, I would, I would encourage you, Jesse and all, everyone at home to, to give it a listen. Um, check out Alan Holdsworth as well. Uh, live in Japan, 1984. Yeah. Um, there's even video from that concert. You can watch it on YouTube. Is there anything else like you'd like to say? What else is going on with you in, in pop culture that you want to you want to discuss? Pop culture? Yeah, I don't feel like I engage with it as much as as much as I should to have something to say about it. Sure, I, I I'm like not grilling you, but we're talking about pop culture stuff, and I'm like I have a very I'm 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 in the know of a sect of pop culture, but uh, not I have at a, large. I have a bad habit of not. Consuming media that's been recommended to me. We talked about that. We we had a, a mutual friend that we hung out with, and I, I mentioned that we watched a good amount of uh, Chainsaw Man, oh, yeah. an anime that, that I had those exact feelings on. No, I I actually I've been better. I take recommendations for for anime at least now. <laughs> I'm still a little weird with music. I I have such a I know this this is basically me saying I'm a hipster, but it's so <laughs> it's so fun to find. You said it, so. It's so fun to find an artist. Uh, it's less fun to feel like oh my my buddy told me that they were good, and it turned out they were. You know, it's like it's more exciting when you have something new to show your friends. Yeah. Than, than when you um, you just confirm that your friend found something cool, because that's great. You know, I love getting good recommendations, but maybe it's just some part of my psyche. And with movies too. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, so. that, that's why, like, I, I have, I think, the same distinctions sometimes, where, which is why, I, like, literally before your show on Friday, I'm like, don't spoil anything. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, how do you spoil music? And I'm like, that, I, as far as, like, tell me what to listen to. It's like, hey, this is good. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll look for it and then I'll decide if it's good. I'll say, I've, I've been much better with that, but I'm still. I say I just I I've I get such a good feeling when I find Your some time's artist. valuable. Well, less than that. Everyone's time's valuable. If, if I thought my time was 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 valuable, I would take recommendations because I'd spend less time looking for stuff. 
Well, uh, I mean, in, in the sense that, you know, there's only so much time on this earth. Again, getting too deep for what we're talking about, but it's like, you don't want to listen to something and be like, it's like, well, I wasted or whatever. I, uh, my family will never let down that I've showed them the room. Oh, like, I got some level of enjoyment out of good. No, that's an enjoyable movie. That I, I think that is a enjoyable movie. I, I do too. It is enjoyable. That is the adjective to describe this film, the descriptive word enjoyable. I really do appreciate you coming, Jesse. Uh, I hope everyone at home enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for everyone who stayed till the very end. Um, look forward to more episodes coming soon. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate your time here today. Hey man, you're very welcome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Any, anything else you want to plug? Well, y'all heard my name. Uh, <laughs> look me up at J E S S E K A T S. Uh, you might need to put an underscore in there if you're looking on social media. Thank you, everyone, um, all of our listeners. Have a great afternoon, morning, evening, whatever time you decided to listen to this show. We're, we're very grateful for you. Thank you so much. Nice. What's that? What was that, two hours? Yeah. You ought to, you ought to trim something. You gotta save this. Ah.